0: Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. We just finished last week in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 19, but in chapter 19 we did see Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. (laughs) that that he would say have mercy on me and jesus did and he saw just as we just sang, amazing grace how sweet the sound right i once was blind but now i see and we saw zacchaeus as jesus was going through town a wee little man who climbed up that sycamore tree and and actually as we see the story it was really jesus looking for zacchaeus zacchaeus thought he was looking for messiah but Jesus had his number. Come on down. I'm going to have lunch with you today. And before it's all over, Zacchaeus is restored. He's a new man. And Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house today. And then to emphasize this, as he begins his journey towards Jerusalem out of Jericho, he gives this story of a landowner, a wealthy lord who's going away, and he gives minas to ten of his servants, one to each one, and he instructs them, do business, occupy, get busy, be about my father's business until I come. And it's something that is so uh, perfect for us today in the day that we live. We know and we see where the world is going, but we know and we see where we're going. (laughs) And we just invite everybody to join us. Hey, we're in this caravan just as Jesus was. It's Passover season. Over two million people are on their way. All the roads, all the highways, all the byways are just flooded with pilgrims on the way up into Jerusalem. And it Brings us to uh, verse 28 in Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Stop. (laughs) There's a little bit I need to fill in before we go forward. He's going up to Jerusalem. He was at Jericho, right? They're like 500 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is up on the top of the mountains, and they have this 19-mile canyon called the Wadi Kelt, and the road that goes back and forth. It's the same road that Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, where a beggar fell in amongst uh, thieves, and they beat him up. And uh, he's using that as an illustration to say, well, who is your neighbor? Who are you responsible for? And uh, that was the, the story of the Good Samaritan. But it's along this road. It's a treacherous road. And it winds from way below sea level on the way up 19 miles into Jerusalem. But there's some things going on in the midst of all of this that I need to make sure that I pick up and maybe insert right here between verses 28 and 29. You can get parts of this story in the other Gospels. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 10, I'll just read a small portion in verses 41 through 45. Um, Well, I guess I should pick up at verse 32, okay, Mark chapter 10. I'm not going to read it all, but on the way up, you can read it. It tells you that He's predicting to everybody His death, and his resurrection. It seems like a theme. It seems like something he keeps saying over and over again. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, but I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be beaten, and they're going to crucify me, and they're going to bury me. And in three days, I'm coming out of that grave. Amen? And so, he's continually reminding these them of these things, and as it was on the road <laughs> up to Jerusalem, the disciples get into a little bit of an argument. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? And Jesus has to intercede, and uh, He tells them, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And here it comes again, give His life a ransom for many. It's just, it's just an ongoing theme, and these are all tucked in here, all these little uh, things between verses 28 and 29. In John's gospel, uh, quite a bit more can be seen that's tucked in here. In, go- in uh, Jesus' gospel, in chapter 10, beginning at verse 40, it talks about all the people who are coming to believe down beyond the Jordan in the area where John was baptizing in the area of Jericho. Of course, we know blind Bartimaeus, we know Zacchaeus, and so many others are in this parade. And then in chapter 11, we see they are now headed up to Jerusalem, but on the way they're going to stop in Bethany because a dear friend of Jesus has taken ill, Lazarus. And he's going to go on up and he's going to heal Lazarus. He's going to bring him back to life. After four days in the grave, he's going to call him out. Lazarus, get out here, right? And sure enough, he does come out. And Jesus instructs him, you guys need to unwrap him, man. He's got work to do. We're going to get busy with things that are going on here. In chapter 12 of John's gospel, it talks about a meal that Jesus had at Lazarus' house with Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. And at this meal, Jesus is anointed. They break open a very precious flask of smichenar, and they anoint him over his head and all over his body. And one of the disciples gets a little bit uh, put out by it. We could have used that money and fed the poor. Remember which one that was? Judas Iscariot, the one who kept the money bag, Right. And it says he even was used to kind of taking a a little bit out of the bag, and it was a little bit less for him to pick out of it. But Jesus would tell them, you'll have the poor with you always, but you do not have me always. And I'm going to read now verse 9 uh, through 13, and that'll bring us up to verse 29 in Luke. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So there's quite this tumult developing. Back in chapter uh, 11, it says that the Jews plotted how they would kill Jesus, right? And so now they've got a, a wanted poster, a death warrant, out for Jesus. And while we're at it, we might as well take Lazarus out because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. we got to do something to stop this, this thing that's going on, this uprising. It says in verse 12 of John 12, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. That brings us back now to Luke chapter 19. Verse 29, Jesus reminds them, the poor you'll have always. Occupy, do business till I come. I'm coming to give my life, a ransom for many. We need to be about our Father's business. Do you understand what is happening? Where are we going and why are we going to Jerusalem? I have an appointment. Just like I had an appointment with Zacchaeus, I have an appointment with a cross on which I am going to pay the sins of the whole world. And you need to understand this background because the crowds, they're just so excited. This is is Messiah, the prophesied Savior, Deliverer of Israel. He's coming up into Jerusalem. And this is the time that they've been waiting for, that He would put down Rome and put down the corrupt religious leaders and rise and make uh, Israel great again. Not MAGA, but Ayaga. Make Israel, no, no, make MIGA. MIGA, not MAGA. Make Israel great again. Spoiler warning. Messiah is not going to come in on Air Force One. And it doesn't really matter how you vote in the upcoming election. That's not going to change that Jesus Christ is our Savior. Now, you know me, and you know how political I can get. And if you don't vote, you really don't want to tell me you don't vote, (laughs) because I don't care who you vote for. I do care, but I just want you to vote. I think you know how to vote. (laughs) But who do we vote for? Jesus! (laughs) Vote for Jesus. Vote for Israel. Vote for the scriptures. Vote for truth. Vote for life. Vote for those causes for which Christ died. Verse 29 And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, this is where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary live, at the mountain called Olivet, that he said to two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Okay? Interesting concept. And this is Jesus' own words. The Lord, and he is the Lord, I, I need it. I need this colt. Jesus is God, and God needs something? Wow. You'd think he's got everything. He doesn't need anything, right? And yet, it is rather interesting. He asked Peter, I need to use your boat. I'd like to put out and preach to the people. He asked the young boy, can I have those loaves and those fishes? I want to feed somebody. He told Peter, "Go catch a fish. Get that coin out. We need to pay our taxes." God needed to pay taxes? <laughs> it's in here. And he needs a room for the last supper. And in a by the end of the week he's going to need a tomb. <laughs> of course, he's just renting it, right? I don't I just I just need it for 3 days. We're not going to stay long. But these are things that God seeks and asks. God, in a weird theological way, needs us. He created us that we would have fellowship with Him. He's seeking fellowship with you, with me. It's something He desires. Well, here he says, I have need of that cold. Now, it's not because he's tired. These guys can walk, okay? They've just walked 19 miles up the Wadi Kelp, okay? They've been in Bethany for over a week, raising Lazarus, having these meals, doing different things. He's been in the, in the region for a couple days. No doubt he's getting a good night's rest. And this is, this is morning. I mean, he's not even tired yet, but he, he needs this. And why does he need it really it's because not one yacht or one tittle will fail from the law. And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, the Word of God. And Zechariah the prophet, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, prophesied, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem!' Behold, your king is coming to you, and he is just having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here we are now, 600 years later, and this is about to come to pass. It's about to be fulfilled. Rather interesting, because Zechariah even refers to him as your king is coming, and yet we know traditionally, and even scripturally, Jewish kings didn't ride write on big stallions, right, beautiful horses. They rode on donkeys. We see in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, where Solomon, in his inauguration, right, they built the temple, they've got the worship, it's all going, music, sacrifices, the crowd's all there, and Solomon... The king of Israel rides in on a donkey, lowly, lowly, humble. You know, of all the beasts of burden, you could make an argument that the donkey is the most recalcitrant, the most stubborn, the most unwilling, and especially a colt of a donkey who's never been ridden, not broken, doesn't understand the whole thing. And yet here's Jesus. And no problem for Jesus, right? He commands the waves and they're still. He can do anything. He's going to come in on this donkey, but he's not coming in as in a triumphal entry. And yet, if you look in your Bible, that's probably what it says right here triumphal entry right? And triumph, that's a Latin word, but it has to do with the parade that a returning retor- general would come in from the battlefield, right? And, and he would have a huge parade, and it actually has three portions in the parade. In the beginning is the, the general and his major officers, and they're all on these huge stallions, and they're all decked out and gleaming in the sun, and they go walking by down the the main road, and everybody's clapping and applauding. And then second to that comes all the spoil, all the things that they've gotten, the gold and the silver. And in fact, even if you go to Rome today, on the Colosseum, there is an etching of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't know where to go with all of that, right? Because we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is, but it's a picture representing conquest of Israel. And then following the following after the the king and all that, then the booty, then come all the slaves. And they just go down the street everybody that they've taken prisoner, and this is a triumph and everybody's just just, you know, beside themselves. We won, we won, we won. But Jesus doesn't come in this way. Right? He's giving himself a ransom for many. He's going to the cross for you and for me. He's becoming a servant of all, just as Zechariah promised the king would do. If anyone asks you, why are you losing it? Thus, you'll say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. Imagine that. God speaks and it's truth. In fact, all God speaks is truth. You can take it to a bank. Verse 33, But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And as you read in the other Gospels, in Matthew's, Mark's Gospel, they'll tell you that they were waving palm branches, another sign of victory, of triumph. And they were laying these these boughs of olive branches and palm branches and just covering the road with their cloaks and everything. It's a red carpet, you know, welcome for Messiah as He comes in. Verse 37, then... As he was now drawing near the descent of Mount Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Wow. Just wonderful worship. Wonderful worship praise, thanksgiving, just lifting up their voices, lifting up their hands, palm branches, everybody's just crowded around and just having the most awesome time. Here finally comes my Deliverer, my Savior, my King, and they are beside themselves with joy. Psalm 118 describes this, written by King David over a thousand years earlier, and yet we read In verse 15 of Psalm 118, I'll read a portion. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but He's not giving me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I'll go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. And just a fun little thing there. I know I bring these in from time to time, but the word in Hebrew, salvation, Yeshua. That's what Mary named her baby. That's who everybody knew he was. Yeshua's here, Yeshua's salvation is here, the Christ, the Messiah. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, save now I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray and send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And God is the Lord, and he has given us light. I'm I'm quoting out of Psalm 118. If you know anything about Psalms, Psalms are songs, they're meant to be sung. We've lost the music, so you can make up your own tune, just like we did uh, Amazing Grace, the, the tune of House of the Rising Sun. It's beautiful, right? You can put your own melody in there, but the words are so powerful. It says here in verse 27, God is the Lord. He has given us light. And then tucked in here, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write, Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. What is that doing in this triumphal entry, this song of rejoicing, this day that the Lord has made? You have become my salvation. And then bind the sacrifice to the altar. Because we know this is what Jesus came to do. And it was foretold a thousand years earlier. By the Holy Spirit speaking to David, you are my God, I will praise you, you are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his he is good, his mercy endures forever. And so here we are in Luke chapter 13. Uh, 19 verse 37, then as He was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all their mighty works they had seen. Now, just to be clear, and it is clear here, as they were praising, as they were worshiping, as they were singing, as they were just declaring the glories of God and reciting the Psalms, this wasn't mindless singing. This was mindful. This was purposeful. The words that they were saying mean something. And it, I just put that forward to us as we worship, as we praise. I, you know, I, I share with the worship team. There's a lot of things we can sing, but we need to be making sure we're singing to God. We need to make sure that our words are pure and true and right. And we're not just going to sing some song just because you heard it on SOS radio and it sounds really good. It probably is really good, and I'm not even knocking it. If you listen to my ringtone, I've got my girl from The Temptations for Cheryl when she calls me. I know it's her. And there's nothing wrong with that song. It's a beautiful song, Um, but (laughs) it's not Scripture, and I'm cognizant that I'm not praising God, although I do say thank you every time it rings for my wife. But they were mindful. It says they were lifting with a loud voice all the mighty works they had seen. And this is something that we do as we come together. Whether we're gathered on Sunday morning and it's worship and and that time or we just get together with each other and let me tell you about my Jesus. You know what happened to me this week? Broke me down in tears. I was so blessed. Or I was so broken. We've got a number of celebrations of life going on in the fellowship right now. And depending on your circle, your group, the people you know, you either know about these or you don't. But even in those times, there's so much to give thanks for, so much that God has given us and, 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 and treasures that we'll always hold in our heart. But it's not mindless. It's purposeful. We purpose to remember the great things, the mighty things, the works that God has done in my life. And this is what they're doing. They're they're serious about their praise. I love that. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Knock it off. You know what they're doing? They're ascribing deity to Jesus. I say amen. But the Pharisees, as we've already seen, have already put a hit on him. They've already issued a death warrant. They're already plotting to how they can take him out. And no matter what they do, A blind man sees, a dead man walks out of the grave. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. And Jesus' fame and reputation is spreading, and now here he is on all days, Passover week, and he's coming into their turf. And they say, hey, none of that around here. Kind of reminds me of some churches I've been to, or it looks like. For communion, they pass around lemon juice. (laughs) Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I know I've brought this and shown it to you before, but... (laughs) I picked this up on the Palm Sunday Road on a descent from Bethany on down into the Kidron Valley and then you go up onto the Temple Mount and it's where Jesus was coming down in this procession. The palm fronds are waving. The clothes are on the road. Jesus is on his colt. The people are singing, Hosanna, save now. (laughs) This is the day the Lord has made. And Jesus says, you know, If these would keep quiet, even the rocks would cry out. You know, Jesus is God. Jesus is creator of the universe. We read in Colossians that it was in Him and through Him and by Him and for Him that all things were created. He was there in the beginning. God, Elohim, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, spoke, and the universe came into existence. And that includes rocks and wind and stars and waves and... And everything, and everything gives thanks to God. I love it as you go through the Old Testament and how poetically we see the trees are praising God and the leaves are praising God and the sun rises praising God and, and everything is to His glory because He's the one who created set it in motion that we could look to it and see Him and lift our voices. Even these rocks would cry out. Somebody's going to praise God. Basically, that's what He's saying. Is it gonna be us? Are we gonna let somebody else get that that joy? I, I I don't know. I I feel a little self-conscious occasionally, and this morning was one of them. Because we're we're praying or we're worshiping, right? And the worship is just fantastic, right? And I, I'm just beside myself enjoying this so much. And then, you know, I don't know if I've heard I hear some of you do this too, but I'll be just like, whoop! like, who is that knucklehead? That's me. In case you're wondering, that was me. I can't contain myself. Now, and again, I do respect there's a time and there's a place, just as we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, a time to <laughs> rejoice and a time to be quiet, right? And, and, and there's all of the above. <sighs> but <laughs> as I told you last week, I've been cooking on this for a whole week. I'm like, I'm ready to go. I want to tell you what I see here. I want to tell you about my Jesus. I want to show you what's in here. And I know many of you already know this, but I don't mean to be overly amped up or um, animated or, or whatever, but I just have a hard time understanding how you can fill up with the Lord and keep it in there. It just comes out. It should. Now, it won't look the same. Some of you have wonderful gifts and talents that are so diverse that you're not, I'm not expecting everybody to be here, you know, busting out and doing some crazy stuff. We're not that. We are charismatic, which is to say we believe in the charis, the grace, the spirit of God. He does indwell the church, and He gifts us with All kinds of wonderful abilities and talents that we might edify him and edify one another. And there's a proper time and place for that. But certainly this is that time. Jesus is coming into town. Jesus is in the house and people are worshiping. Verse 41. Now, as he drew near, so the procession is winding down this road, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. And you could say, oh, he got teared up. He got nostalgic. I don't know. Have you ever seen? I know, I remember one year with Aaron, it was a birthday time, and we got him a birthday present. We surprised him, and we got a birthday present that just overwhelmed him. He was a little boy. Um, like in that 10, 11-year-old zone. And when he unwrapped it and he saw it, (laughs) and the tears start coming down. I don't know what's happening to me. (laughs) And he was crying, tears of joy. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever done that? I mean, wow, wow. And for the first time it ever happened to him as a little kid, he's like, I don't know what's happening to me. Kind of freaky. But he was so happy, so excited. This isn't that. In the Greek, that word for cry could best be translated wail. Audible, grieving, Big old tears just dripping into his beard. Sobbing. Convulsing. Anything but triumphal. Not by our standards. Not by our understanding of what's going on. Just earlier in that week, we read the shortest verse in the Bible in John And Jesus wept. Why? Because his dear friend Lazarus had died. It grieved him. doesn't say why he wept. You have to speculate on that. But as I said, we have several celebrations of life going on in our fellowship right now. And when you love somebody and you lose them, it leaves a hole in your heart. There is a season for mourning. It's proper. You, you, you feel the emptiness. And it just takes time for that to be filled with the memories, for the love and the hugs of Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking with, his, with Lazarus, no doubt, he's looking at him or looking at the situation, it says he saw all the people who were gathered there. They're wailing. They're going in the traditional Jewish ways of, um, you know, honoring the dead and all these things. And, And Jesus cried. And I don't doubt part of it is he's looking at them and thinking, they don't understand this at all. It broke his heart. He's thinking, man, that was one of my friends. And yes, Jesus had friends, personal friends on earth. He was human just like you and I. And it hurt him, he missed his friend. No doubt, just the wages of sin, the ravages of death grieved him. The fall of man and the net result. This is not the way it was supposed to be. We were designed to live eternally forever in bliss and glory with the Lord before the garden. No doubt that broke his heart. And as I was meditating on this, another thought came into my head. He's probably in somewhere thinking, I'm about to call him out of that grave. And we're going to unwrap him. And he's going to live. And then they're going to kill him. And that, I'm sure, broke his heart. It's one of the things, as Christians, it's difficult to share with people. But if you want the gospel, you need the full gospel, you need the whole truth. And when you confess Jesus as Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you become a child of God, you submit your life to His will, His ways, you recognize that in doing so you put a target on your back, and the enemy wants to take you out. And short of the rapture, which I believe could happen any moment, we've all got an appointment with death, that's simply the portal into eternity. But nevertheless, it's hard. And when I look at somebody and I share the gospel with them, and I I, I, I think of myself and when I received the gospel and how desperately I needed a savior, how I needed forgiveness, how I needed to overcome. All the things that I and my flesh was doing. I wanted to live a clean, pure, bright, joyful life. And I needed help with all of that. But the reality is, as I receive Christ, the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians that we are going about with the dying of the body of Christ in us. That, That we feel that pain that Jesus felt. And here he is now coming into Jerusalem, and he wept, he convulsed, he wailed, he cried. And I'm sure everybody's just like, what's he doing? He says in verse 42, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now... They are hidden from your eyes. If you, only you. I mean, he's talking to Israel. He's talking to the Jews. Of all people, they should have known what was actually happening. The things that make for their peace. If you had riddled this out, I've been trying to tell you. I've said it over and over and over again. We're going up to Jerusalem. Mocked, scourged, beaten, crucified buried, and resurrected. I'm going to reconcile you to the Father. I'm going to break down that wall of separation between you and God, that enmity that's existed since the garden. I'm going to make that all right, and there will be peace. There will be shalom, complete wholeness, complete oneness, and it's going to come through my shed blood on the cross. If you had known this, if only this, your day, that day that's going to make for your peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. Interesting thing, I've got a little handout. It's out by the bulletin board, if anybody wants to pick this up as we go out back on this. But there's a prophecy in the Scriptures that declare the exact day that Jesus would ride into town. You can find it in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, it's known as the 70 weeks prophecy. I'll read a little bit of it, and then I'm going to break it out for you just a little. But just understand this, Daniel lived 700 years before Jesus, 600 years before Jesus, and yet the Holy Spirit gave them this to write. Actually, Gabriel told him to write these things down. Verse 24 of Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. We've talked about a whole bunch of those already just this morning. They sang as he came in. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. They're singing the song, but they don't understand. Know therefore, Daniel 9:25. know therefore and under, understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, speaking of Jesus Christ, uh, Mashiach Hanagid, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. He's going to be assassinated. He's going to be killed, but not because he did anything wrong. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This city, this beautiful city on a hill, Jerusalem, the temple, the Temple Mount, and everything there is going to be destroyed. In Luke chapter 19, 43 it says for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will no longer leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. If you, only you had known for the things that made for your peace but they've been hidden from your eyes because you didn't know the time of your visitation and it was written in the book of Daniel over 600 years earlier. This handout that I have kind of breaks down a little bit of the 70 weeks of Daniel and how to understand it. It's complicated if you're new to the Bible. It's complicated if you've been around the Bible for a while. It's really helpful to kind of Find some tools that will help you dig some of these things out. But I'm going to just read off this sheet. The 70 Weeks of Daniel, as understood by Sir Robert Anderson. He was the um, admiral of the British um, Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, and he ran this. It was the modern or the ancient day in his day, the 1800s, it was the NASA of the world they would do all kinds of celestial sightings and figure out all kinds of amazing things and he wrote a book called the coming prince and it's about this passage right here daniel 9 24 and 25 says that the decree to rebuild jerusalem to the coming of messiah there will be 483 years seven shaboim that's the hebrew for weeks or hepstead in greek seven plus 62 weeks, or 69 groups of seven years, equals 483 years. You can already see why I'm going to give you a paper, but I just want you to listen, okay? Don't try to memorize it. Under- Anderson understood the prophetic year as 360 days. This is based on an ancient history, and it, like in the book of Revelation in chapter eleven, thirteen, 13, and other places, which inditu- indicates that three and a half years or the 42 months are all equal to 360 day years um, and and kind of it breaks it down that way. Therefore, the 483 years times 360 days equals 173,880 days. If you're a Bible scholar, you probably already have that number memorized. 173,880 days. Why would anybody go around and memorize an obscure number like that? It'd make a really good license plate if you, if it's available. Well, Artaxerxes started his reign in 465 B.C. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given on the first day of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. In our calendar system, which is the Julian calendar, the date is March 14, 445 B.C. You can read that in Nehemiah 2.1. So the king in the day of Nehemiah gave it a decree to rebuild the wall of the temple. And that's what we just read in Daniel chapter 9. That's the beginning date. Jesus started his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius, that was the emperor. And Tiberius started his reign in AD 14. So Jesus's ministry started in AD 29 at the age of 30. You can read about that in Mark chapter 1. Anderson believed that Jesus celebrated four passovers during his ministry. One in each year of A.D. 29, 30, 31, and the one that we're reading this morning, A.D. 32. Now, with the help of lunar charts, we can calculate the exact date of ancient Passovers, so it's possible to calculate the exact date of Jesus' tribal entry into Jerusalem as April 6 of A.D. 32. From 445 B.C. to A.D. 32, there are 476 years on the Julian calendar, not 477 because there's no zero in Julian calendars. The 476 years times 365 days equals 172,740 days, but you have to adjust for the differences between March 14th and April 26th adding 24 days and you have to put in 116 leap years. That brings you to 172,880 days from the decree that Artaxerxes made in March 14 of 445 B.C. on the exact day, Nisan 10, 32 A.D., Jesus rode into town. Exactly, 173,880 days later. Wow. I mean, that's a wow moment. Now, there are people that will take issue with this, and I, you know, go ahead and Google it. You'll find different people who have factored it out one way or another, but there's some pretty sound math in here. And I, when I saw that, it was just one of those proofs to me of like, we're not, we're not dealing with fables. This isn't myths. This isn't, le- th- this is like, this is rocket science. This is NASA. This is, this is amazing stuff. If only... You had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes because you did not know the time of your visitation. The rabbis write, and we can read these ancient writings, they were anticipating Messiah, right? This is the theme. From the, from the Garden of Eden, even in Genesis 3.15, we get the proto which tells us that there's going to be one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We see him developed as the Messiah. We watch the Messiah prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Everybody in Judaism that had these holy scriptures was looking forward to Jesus. And in Jesus's day, everybody was on Messiah alert. They, he's got to come now. It's time. He's got to come now. And in fact, it's very interesting that that um, Rome took away Israel's right f- to execute people for capital punishment in about 8 A.D. And the rabbis write, and this is an interesting thing, they, they wailed because they said that we read um, in the Scriptures in Genesis that... Um, they were waiting for Shiloh to come, that the scepter would not depart from Israel until Shiloh comes, okay? Shiloh being a name for Messiah. And when they took away the scepter, they took away the right to rule. They took away the right to execute criminals from Israel. All the rabbis are going into this frenzy. They're all topsy-turvy. Oy vey, oy, oy vey. woe to us. The scepter has departed from Israel. And Messiah has not come it's part of the written record and yet there was a little boy about 12 years of age in the temple teaching and preaching about his father and even his parents didn't understand it must be about my father's business and the world just wasn't understanding Jesus. They, didn't, they, they thought He'd be some kind of great political Savior. That was His first advent. He came in lowly, humble, riding on a foal, the colt of a donkey. There will be a second coming. We read about this clearly, Zechariah chapter 14, Ezekiel, um, Revelation chapter 19, and Jesus will return, this time on a white stallion. That is a conquering king coming back from the battle victorious. And we will be in that procession with him. That day is coming. It's not yet. This is, we read about it. Caused Jesus just to wail and cry. His first advent, he came to die that we might live. But he's coming again. And the question for us this morning, as we receive what Luke has recorded for us, in Jesus' day, everybody was looking for Jesus. Everybody was excited for Jesus. Everybody knew they needed deliverance. They needed a Savior. Something's got to give. (laughs) I have conversations with you guys every week, and as the news cycle goes, there is not a week that goes by that something just doesn't come and just hit you like in the solar plexus and knock the wind out of you. I can't believe, I couldn't believe, I never, the stuff that's happening in the world today. And it's almost on a weekly basis, and something's got to give. We can't keep going like this. We're not going to. The Bible clearly teaches us. Occupy till I come. And as we're going to see Jesus teach, when you see these things begin to happen, look up. Your redemption draws nigh. The question for us this morning, just like it was for the people in Luke chapter 19, jesus is coming are we going to see him are we going to recognize him are we going to know him will we understand what is going on in the world around us because so many of them missed it even though they were looking for him and yet we've got his word he's laid it all out clearly for us the days that we live in the bible is chock full of prophecy At least one-third of the Bible is prophetic, speaking about things yet future. A huge portion of that spoke of Jesus as Christ's second coming. The odds of Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies, just like the one coming in on a colt that Zechariah prophesied, or the one on the day that he would come in as Daniel prophesied, the odds of that happening are, they're not even astronomical. Astronomical isn't a big enough word. When they do the math of probability, the chances of Jesus fulfilling all the prophecies of His first coming exceed that of all the electrons in the known universe. Mathematicians have a word for that. It's a real word. If you take math, you'll get this word eventually. The word they use is impossible. I'm not, it's not even a funny thing. I didn't make, it, it, it is funny, right? We, but this is what they say. No, not possible. Mathematically, not possible that one man could fulfill all those prophecies. And that was just his first coming. And yet he says, I am going away. I'm going to, uh, uh, in my father's house are many mansions. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. He built the world in six days. He's been working on your house for 2,000 years. What kind of a place is this going to be? And he promised, I'm coming back. The scriptures are full of promises of Jesus' second coming. And we have no reason to look around the world and say, oh, the occupying forces. Oh, the wicked culture, the, the corrupt religion, the fallen state of man. Yes, it's all depraved all day long. so much more to the story. We're going to stop there for this morning. I should ask the worship team to come on up so you'd be ready. (laughs) Don't you love the worship? Man, this is so good. I've asked them. If you can play a couple of those songs again, I would just, I would love that. And if I hoot and holler, join me. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. An opportunity, once again, to shout your praises, to declare your victory, to acknowledge you, our King, our Savior, our friend. Help us, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to receive your word and plant it deep in our heart. Water it and cultivate it, Lord, that it would sprout and give great fruit in our life. Empower us, Lord, to be that salt, to be that light, to be your witnesses in these days. That as we go out of this place, you've given us a song to sing and a story to tell in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www thespringscalvarychapel.org Join us in person at The Springs in Hayburn, Idaho or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.